Matthew chapter 20, this chapter is a perfectly good example of bad divisions of chapter and verse. For the most part, chapter and verse division are pretty good. Sometimes they can be adjusted one verse, sometimes a whole section. Um, This one will be a whole section, as we'll see. Jesus is walking under the shadow of the cross, uh, as G. Campbell Morgan uh, declares in his commentary. Uh, This began at the confession of Caesarea Philippi there on Mount Hermon at the foot where Jesus uh, uh, said to Peter, Blessed thou art Simon Barjona, flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my Father which is in heaven. The confession that Jesus was the Son of the living God. And so now Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. But here again, verse 1 through 16 of chapter 20 is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. This parable is connected to the end, the last verse of verse 19. The last verse, first last, is reversed back over to chapter 20, verse 16. So the parable illustrates what he's just dealt with Peter, and we'll see this as we move along. The chapter break is most unfortunate. Um, the young rich man has just reject the salvation that Jesus offered to him in chapter 19, verse 16 through 22. And Jesus taught his disciples the difficulty of rich people entering the kingdom of heaven, not because God hates rich people, it's because most of the time they trust and depend upon the riches and are willing to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he made that very clear in verses 23 to 26 of 19. This That prompted Peter to consider that they had left all. In verse 27 of 19, um, asking Jesus, therefore, what shall we have? If this guy has all this money and he can't, we've left everything. So Peter contrasts himself and the apostles to the rich man. All parables do one of two things. They compare or they contrast. They never do anything else. This parable is a contrast, okay? Jesus answered Peter's question and promised the 12 to sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, And they would receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. He made this very clear um, there in chapter 19. So he answers Peter's question. Now, the punchline then is given at the last verse of 19. But many who are first will be last. The principle illustrates here in the proverb is affirmed and confirmed by verse 16 of chapter 20. The last will be first, the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. And so the parable, as we'll see, um, teaches against the attitude of superiority and greatness for reward due to the length of service, notoriety, or even the amount of work that a person has done. What it focuses on, and people get all kinds of interpretation from this, contrast or compare. One punchline, one message. Here's the message of this parable. Fidelity, faithfulness to what he's called you. That's it. The rest are just examples of the details. All right? Fidelity, faithfulness to what God has called you. 
God's not concerned of how long you serve the Lord. God's not concerned how famous you are or whatever it is. Your faithfulness to be the steward and the servant that God has called you to be for what he has entrusted you with. This is what the parable is teaching. It is not teaching the dispensation between Jew and Gentile or the various ages of people coming to the kingdom. It's not teaching last uh, deathbed experiences or people coming to the kingdom the very last hour. It's amazing the subjective interpretation that people give to all this. If you start giving every little meaning to every detail of a parable, you destroy the parable. One message, one punchline. Compare or contrast. Most parables are destroyed from the pulpit. Now, verse 1 and 2. The hiring of the first group of laborers is given. The setting of the parable by Jesus. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for the vineyard. Remember the word parable. is parallel alongside and boldly to throw. So uh, we get parallel parking, paramedic, paralegal alongside these professions, okay, and are on the curb. And the best way to describe a parable is taking something you, you know, putting it next to what you don't know, and then knowing what you do know, you'll know what you didn't know. A sower went out to sow seed, something understood. Put it next to the sowing of the seed, the word of God. Goes into the ground, sprouts out. The heart is the ground of the, of the person, and the word takes seed in the heart. If the heart rejects it, it's bad soil. It's real simple. That's what a parable does. The kingdom of heaven is the period between the first and the second coming, as we've seen, to set up the kingdom. The kingdom of God is the larger. It includes all, even eternal aspect of the kingdom. The landowner went out to the marketplace here uh, to find laborers in the morning, 6 a.m. Um, the vineyard is an emblem of uh, Israel. He's talking to Jews. Um, Isaiah 5 and Jeremiah and other places. And um, they pick it at the end of September and the harvest. Um, they harvest it till the rainy season. If not, uh, if they don't get it in and store it, then it gets um, destroyed. So in the parable, there is an urgency, okay, um, to make sure that all this stuff, that your faithful fidelity to get this stuff done, uh, because God wants to reward us. God deals with uh, the aspect of the Bema Seed of Christ for all the believers, okay? Uh, he rewards us not for what I do, how much I do, but how I do it. Faithfully, for the love of God and for the love of people. Simple. The hiring, notice in verse 2, of the laborers at the marketplace is given. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for the denarii day, he sent them into his vineyard. The wages were agreed upon a denarii a day, a day's wages. Even soldiers were paid that. The men went and they labored in the vineyard once the agreement was made. Verse 3 and 4, the hiring or the hiring of the second group of laborers is given. And the owner of the vineyard went out again to the marketplace and he went out about the third hour and he saw... Others standing idle in the marketplace. Um, the third hour is 9 a.m., three hours after the first. This is nothing new, what this man is doing. 
You go to Home Depot, you need some laborers, you have a whole bunch of guys hanging around there in the morning, right? You go to a, a, a paint department, they have workers out there too. They're hoping somebody drive by and give them hire for the day. Nothing new. The owner, notice, told the men in verse 4, he would pay them justly. The first group, he told them a denarii. These ones, justly. He says to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. No amount. This is just. What is right, what is appropriate. The men agreed. They went to the vineyard. Verse 5 is the hiring of the third and fourth group of laborers. The owner went again to the marketplace. Again, he went out. About the sixth and the, ni- and the ninth hour. The sixth and ninth hour is 12 noon and 3 p.m. Um, half of the day is gone. The owner again hired them and they agreed and did likewise. No denarii mentioned. They agreed to be paid justly. Now in verse 6 and 7, the hiring of the fifth group of laborers is given to us. The owner inquired of some men that were at the marketplace. So he goes back out there. About the 11th hour, he went out and he found others standing idle. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? When you first read it, you would think it's like a rebuke or something, but it isn't. This is the 11th hour, 5 p.m. There's only one hour left for the day to work. They were standing idle. The word can be translated lazy, but that's not what it means here. He asked them why they're standing idle, doing nothing, that's what it says. The men informed him their dilemma. They said to him, because no one hired us, he said to them, you also go into my vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. No person had hired them as laborers. They had one hour left, but they're still hanging out. He told them to go to the vineyard and they would receive what was right, just and appropriate. Now, when you get to verse 8 to 12, you have the laborers called to be paid their wages. Remember, this is illustrating Peter's question in the previous chapter. You see, if you read chapter by chapter and you come tomorrow and you start on this one, you forget what it relates to, right? And you're trying to figure all this out subjectively instead of objectively connecting the, the truth. And the message of one punchline, one message, and it's reward for service, faithfulness. In verse 8, the owner instructed his house manager to pay the laborers in reverse order. Interesting. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his stewards, 
Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. You got to connect the dots. Last verse of 19, first, last, this year, and verse 16 of chapter 20. It's all connected. Verse 9, the laborers that work one hour were paid first. And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarii. In verse 9, the first laborers hired were paid last. In verse 10 and 12, the owner wanted them to see what he was doing. They thought they would get paid more than their last laborers. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received each a denarius. Well, needless to say, they were upset. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner. Verse 11. The word complain means to murmur, mutter, or grumble. The reason being that they murmured, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have bore the burden of the heat of the day. Now, They reveal their ungratefulness, their envy, and their jealousy. Envy desires less for others. Jealousy desires more than others. A contract was made. We're going to see the landowner deal with these men. There was no mistake about the agreement of what they were working for. But it's what they saw and how they perceived it through their mind. The landowner confronted the murmuring laborers here in the parable. In verse 13, he had fulfilled his agreement, he said. Verse 13, but he answered one of them and said, so there's a spokesman, there's always a big mouth. Always pecking order, okay? Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Well, the answer would have to be yes. By expressing friend, he's indicating he was not acting dishonestly towards him or wrong at all. He reminded him of their agreement of one denarius. He really doesn't have the leg to stand on as he's being confronted. So he reproves him and told him he had the right to do as he did, be merciful. He reproves this man. 
take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. What is yours? The denarii. That's what we contracted for. Go your way. The word wish means to will or to have in mind. This is his generous decision. He has the freedom to do that. So next he rebukes him for questioning his sovereign right to do with his money as he wills. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? It's a rhetorical question that has only one correct answer. Yes. If someone would say no, they're out of line. His money and property was his own. He could do as he pleased with them. You, you can give your car away or you can sell it. You can give your house away or you can sell it. You can do whatever you want. You could even burn it down if you want it, but don't try to collect insurance. You get thrown in jail. It's your property, right? Then he charged the man accusing them that his goodness actually provoked his evilness. It revealed his evilness. Or is your eye evil because I am good? The answer is yes. Mm. The word for evil is poneros. It means of a bad nature, corrupt, and delights in making other people corrupt or doing corrupt things to him. The same word is used of Satan and the Antichrist in John seventeen fifteen and first John two thirteen. Poneros. Here's the punchline, verse sixteen. The application of the parable. So the last will be first and the first last, for many are called, but few Chosen. The order is in reverse from the prior one in verse 30 of chapter 19. The parable is a contrast. The punchline is the last shall be first and the first last in rank and greatness before God regarding their fidelity, their faithfulness, they will be rewarded. Remember the question of Peter? What about us? We left all. He says, you guys are going to sit on 12 thrones. And you're going to have a hundredfold benefit. And then you're going to inherit eternal life. Wow. The parable teaches against the attitude of superiority or greatness due to the length of service, notoriety, or amount of work done. But it teaches fidelity to God and faithfulness to the call, the opportunities given in life. To those who much is given, much more is required, right? A woman is married and she has five, six, seven kids. God has not called her to go to work. God has called her to stay home and raise godly children and take care of her husband. And her husband may be one of the most famous preachers. 
And we'll wait to get to heaven. She might be up front and he'll be at the end. Because she was faithful to what she did unto God. But he did not. Though he appeared to be great before all. Wow. God views things differently, doesn't he? Altogether. Many call, but few chosen for reward. Many call, but fidelity, faithfulness. It's a strange thing. Commitment. The Christian race is uh, not a sprint. It's a marathon. Pace yourself. Pace yourself. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Verse 17 through 19, we have now the prediction of Jesus about his uh, death and resurrection for the third time. There's a couple other, um, another time that's implied. Um, the parallel passages here are uh, Mark 10, 32 through 34 and uh, Luke um, 18, 31 through 34. And the preparation of the apostles by Jesus is regarding his death here. The route was to Jerusalem by way of Perea, as we've seen. Verse 17 says, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them. So he has come down the Galilee, crossed over to the east side, come down Perea, down the, the King's Highway, and now he's coming over. He's going to come across there by the fort where the uh, uh, Jericho is. Um, some of you go to Israel with us in two weeks. We will point that out to you. We'll go down there by Jericho, and you'll be able to see it. Um, and you always go up to Jerusalem. You will never read in the Bible, hey, let's go down to Jerusalem. No, no, no. No matter where you are in the country of Israel, you go up elevation up to Jerusalem it's the city of David higher up to Jerusalem Mark says the disciples were amazed and afraid Mark 10 32 um, they think the kingdom is going to be established getting the jitters (laughs) things are happening there's a crowd all around them Now here, the Sanhedrin would condemn him to death. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Again, I can't say it enough. They never understood it or heard that. They were dead set that Jesus was going to set up the kingdom. This is the third time it's mentioned, 1621, 1722, and 23. Here we have it again. And the Son of Man, notice, speaks of his incarnation, the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. That's why he could redeem us. That's why he could become sin for us. That's why he could take the wrath of God upon himself and make a true and real payment. The Roman Empire would be the vehicle and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and discourage and to be crucified. And the third day he will rise again. 
we will see the scourging, the mocking. Again, if you go to Israel with us, we will go into the area where they took Jesus and you will put some water on the ground there and you'll see the little game they played with the prisoners, the mockery, the evilness of the Roman soldiers. Still there. This is the first time Gentiles are mentioned regarding his, his, the Roman leaders. This is the first time he says, crucify. This is the third time he mentions his death and resurrection. He never mentions one without the other. From, from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem, they're always together. Verse 20 through 28, now we have the request of Solomon. As she requests Jesus, a uh, favor for her sons. We did it in depth this morning. I'll just go through general commentary. The p- parallel passages, Mark 10, 35 through 45, and Luke 22, 24 through 27. Now in verse 20, we have the coming of Solomon to Jesus. And the setting is then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her, uh, to him with her sons. Um, the mother of Zebedee's sons was um, the sister of um, the mother of Jesus. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-six, Mark fifteen forty, and John nineteen twenty-five. Those women were all there at the cross. It's amazing how many women were named Mary. Um, you know, like in Mexico, so many guys have the name Jesus. It's Jesus. <laughs> I mean, we're religious. You know what I mean? Um, the sons were James and John, as you know, who were cousins of Jesus then, and Salome was his aunt. So this kind of just brings reality into play here because we know how family members can try to play off somebody or try to work somebody over when they have a position of power or wealth or whatever and and they cahoot and they bargain and this and that and there's ulterior motives and of course being relatives the person feels well he won't turn me down or I'll just say you know I remember when I helped you you had nothing now you have some you know and you feel indebted all this all this evilness of the heart comes in ladies and gentlemen the Bible is real. It is just <clears throat> real life. The posture of Solomon had a purpose. Kneeling down and asking something from him. In fact, in Mark 10, the, the two, because right now she's coming and then she's going to address them alone. Mark doesn't tell us about her. He just presents the two. And the two James and John say, we would have you to give us whatever we desire or whatever we ask. A blank check. (laughs) Amazing. Why? Because they were in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. They saw Jairus' daughter risen from the dead. They went up to Mount Transfiguration, saw the second coming, encapsulated form. And so they just figure, hey, we're, we're, we're the elite. But even though Peter's in it, you know, we got to up him because Jesus just told him that 
he gave him the keys of the kingdom up in the Mount Transfiguration. We got to get our place right now, left and right hand. Wow. I mean, people say the Bible is not a reality. Are you kidding me? The Bible shows people exactly what they are. Sinners, selfish, self-seeking. Wow. Her posture appeared to be sincere, even devoted, respectful, reverent, with ulterior motives. This didn't just happen. They, they, they talked it over. They plotted it out. Even, oh, hi, Jesus. Yeah, you know how that goes. <laughs> As if they could pull one over on Jesus. The specific request and response of Jesus is in verse 21 and 22. And Jesus acknowledged her. And he said to her, what do you wish? Solomon suggested or requested here for the two highest positions in his kingdom. I mean, if you're going to shoot, shoot high, right? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one at your right hand, the other on your left, in your kingdom. The right hand being the higher, the left, the second, above the other ten. Jesus had already promised them they were going to sit on 12 thrones in chapter 19, verse 28. But I guess that wasn't enough. You see, flesh always wants its pound of meat. And then it wants more. They were very convinced that Jesus was going to set up the kingdom. They didn't want to lose. They saw this as a window opportunity. But it's a bad window. There's some windows and doors that if you don't walk through, they'll never come again. And there's some windows and doors you don't want to walk through them. Okay? Jesus reproved the three of them. The two directly, the and indirectly. Verse 22 but Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. The word ask is they're asking for their own benefit. The middle voice. Jesus asked two questions. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? The cup, once again, symbolic of the sufferings prior to the uh, right on the cross and, 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 and just the agony and the Pouring out of God's wrath upon his own son. My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? A couple of verses down in Psalm 22. Because you are holy. And Jesus became sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And for that set time, God poured out his wrath. And judged your sin and mine on Jesus Christ. People say, well, yeah, we should be like Jesus like that. Don't, don't fight back. No, 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 no. Jesus didn't say a word or anything because he was guilty. He took your sin and mine. He was guilty. God made him guilty for me. He had no sin in and of himself. He took my sin. Thou art holy. 
Jesus became a literal sin for us. Who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. Not ours alone, but the whole world. Propitiation is that which satisfied the wrath of God and made the real payment. Wow. The payment is made to God, not to Satan. Don't believe people. That's blasphemous. Okay? Amazing. You do not know what you ask. You ask two questions. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and baptize with the baptism I'm about to baptize? I mean, they seem simple, very simple questions. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. But again, the suffering, the baptism, symbolic sorrow. There on the cross, the agony. My God, my God. He said in the garden, if it's any way possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. James and John responded. He said to him, we are able. They weren't sheepish about it. They didn't hesitate. Yo, we can do it. Wow. They and Solomon had no idea what really was going to happen. As I said this morning, let's take some freedom in the scripture here. And let's just say that Jesus said, all right, James, since he's mentioned first, he's probably the older. You're going to be on my right? John, you're going to be on my left when we get there. And all of a sudden, they're up there and there's no two thieves next to them. It's James and John. And they look to Jesus and they say, Lord, what, what, what happened? And Jesus says, what did you guys have in mind? Wow. Pretty embarrassing, huh? The prophecy of Jesus now comes about James and John. 23. Both would indeed suffer and experience suffering and death for Jesus. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. But not at this time. James was killed by Herod with the sword, as you know. Acts 12, 1 and 2. Peter was released. He was free. But really, let me ask you, who really was released? James. He didn't have to be here anymore. <laughs> okay? We have a wrong perspective when the Lord takes people home. Doesn't mean that we're not to cry. Doesn't mean that we don't love people. We're going to miss them, but not that we don't know where they're at. But the minute you die, you're instantly present with the Lord. Second Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. You're with him present. Your body goes to the ground. If you die tonight, then they would take your body, bury it, cremate it, whatever you want done with it. And if the rapture happened next week, 
we who are alive would be caught up together and our body would be transfigured into our glorified body as we're going up. And then the cadavers that are in the ground, whether they were sprinkled with ashes or whatever it is, they will be also caught up. And the people that are coming down that have already been with Jesus will receive their glorified body at the same time. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17 says. You do not receive your glorified body the minute you die. That's unbiblical. All right? What am I in if I die right now? I don't know. But Paul says you're not found naked. You're instantly present. So as long as you're not naked, don't worry about it. You're with Jesus. Okay? But the order is different. Now, Jesus says that God the Father would make that decision. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. So, in the plan of salvation, in the plan of rewards, in the plan of different things, we we are told very specific things, but sometimes there's an interacting and overlapping of the Trinity which sometimes doesn't make sense to us. But Jesus submitted himself to the Father, First Corinthians, uh, in 2 Corinthians 2, 11, 1 through 3, uh, God's creative order, the head of Christ is God, and the head of man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man. And that never means inferiority, but it's uh, submission for efficiency and effectiveness. Women's lib don't understand what's going on. Listen. Women's liberation has never done anything for women but enslaved them. They fought to go to work. Now they have to go to work. The double income kicked in in 1977. I bought my first house for $22,500 in 1974. 1,200 square foot house, double garage. Block wall in Covina behind the old white front. <laughs> Three years later, I sold that house for 40000 In three years, the double income kicked in. Every business and the government understood that they could jack up the prices and women would continue to go to work and they could make more money. So everybody bought into it, right? And everybody's boasting about, oh man, look, my house is worth this and that. And so then the bank started pumping all of the people, hey, take out money and buy a second house, buy a vacation house, buy a boat, buy this, buy that. And they did. And houses kept going up. But it was a, it was a, a bubble. It wasn't real money. And then the bottom dropped. And people lost their houses. And everything else. But the bigger bubble, they were ignorant of. You see, when I bought my house in 1974 for 225 my taxes were $210, $220 a year. 1.1% with the Jarvisville. But down the road, that house is probably worth maybe 400000 right now. 
That person, if a person buys that for, let's say, $500,000, they are going to pay probably about $6,000 taxes a year. So people, I told people, people are not going to lose their houses for the payment. It's going to be for their taxes. Okay? Greed gets us. Greed, ladies and gentlemen. Amazing. So where is the goodness of man? <laughs> Good for nothing. Now we live in this world. Doesn't matter, I can't take nothing with me. So I'd be a good steward of it, but I don't live for it. Just hold it real loose. Because when it all goes under, it'll go real quickly. India is going to be the first nation to go cashless very soon. They're right at the peak of passing up China in population. No cash at all. Your banks are going to start questioning you if you make large deposits of cash. They don't want cash. And if you move a large amount of cash out of your account, they will question you. I, I used to teach about prophecy of the last days and the Antichrist. Now we've been living in it since 2000. We crossed the gauntlet in 2000, particularly with 201, with the terrorist activity of the Twin Towers. And our nation went the wrong way. Rather than becoming defensive towards our nation, we became so open-minded, our brains leaked out. And so, if you're greedy or stupid, you pay the price. Right? Study history. That's why they don't teach it in school. So you can repeat the stupidity. As people in the nation, the educators are not fools. The politicians aren't fools. They know exactly, exactly what they're doing. Well, let's get back to the study here before I get in trouble. So they're going to pay the price too. They're going to suffer. John, um, tradition says, was boiled in oil. He didn't die. Uh, he got put in the island of Patmos, Revelation 1.9. And there God gave him the revelation to write. And God the Father will give this position. No one else. Now, in verse 24, the response of the ten other apostles, <clears throat> they were um, outraged. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Displeased means uh, indignant. They were ticked off. They wanted to wring their necks. We all know what it is to be in a position like that, right? When you trust somebody and they stab you in the back? Wow. If you haven't, just be patient. It'll happen. The reason was that they um, also desired the highest position. The problem was the two beat the ten to it. So they were just as guilty. They were just a little slower. 25 to 28, the teaching on being first or greatest, Jesus teaches now the 12 about service. This whole theme of greatness, first and last, keeps going. Jesus reminded them of the principle of the world uh, to rule over others. 
but Jesus called them to himself and says, You know that the ruler of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Verse 25. You've been around long enough, the workforce, wherever it is. It's a pecking order, right? Verse 26, you have the principle the kingdom is contrary, yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you will be your servant. Servant, you get the word deacon from it, a waiter on tables. That's what a pastor is, a glorified uh, waiter. That's all. 27, the principle of the kingdom is downward. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Slave is doulos, a slave by choice. His master would put a hole in his ear, put a ring on it, not wanting to be free after the sixth year, the seventh year, and he was serving for life by choice. This is a phrase that is used by Paul, and it's supposed to be used of you and myself. The teaching is by personal example. Verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but the servant to give his life a ransom for many. Same word, just to serve, deacon. Jesus came, God emptied himself of his glory, Philippians 2, 5 says, and he divested that. He never gave up his deity, and he veiled himself with a human body, and he came down to wash feet and die. Jesus was born to die. You were born, and you will die, and I. But he was born to die for you and I. He gave his life a ransom, lutron, for a redemption, a buying a slave out of the market. That's what he did for us. He redeemed us. 29 through 34, you have the healing of the two blind men at uh, Jericho. Parallel passages are Mark 10, 46 through 52 and Luke 18, 35 through 43. 29 through 30, the situation is that Jericho described. The setting is now as they went out. Jericho, a great multitude followed him. Um, <clears throat> some from Galilee were with him, coming down Perea side on the other side of the Jordan, down the King's Highway. You have a great multitude, perhaps some are, are following him along the way also. And um, uh, they're sincere seekers, some of them. Some of them are not. Uh, some people just like excitement. They follow along or see what they can get. Um, people come to church for different things, different reasons. Some come looking for a wife. Some come looking for money. Some come looking to see who they can rip off. And some come because God has directed them and they're going to repent. People come to church for many different reasons. Many, many reasons. The circumstance at Jericho is given to us in 30. He says, And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Matthew mentions two blind men sitting by the road. They heard Jesus passing by and called out to him. Mark and Luke say it was one, or they only mention one. They don't say it was one only. They just mention one, not two, perhaps being the more prominent one. <clears throat> In fact, uh, Mark 10.46 and Luke 18.35 gives us his name. Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Matthew does not tell us when it took place, but Mark says it took place as they were going out of Jericho. And Luke says while coming into Jericho. What do we do with that in Mark 10, 46 and Luke 18, 35? And people love that who hate Christianity or the Bible. And they say, ah, see, contradiction. All right, tighten up your belt. No contradiction, but rather complementary information to supplement the whole of the record. That's what the Gospels do. 
The city of Jericho was cursed after the conquest, as you know, Joshua 6.26 and 1 Kings 16.34. The city of Jericho in the days of Jesus was not the same lo- in the same location as the days of Joshua. There were two Jerichos, the old Jericho and the new Jericho, upper and lower. Therefore, they are describing different perspectives of the event as they left the one and entering the other. Okay? Real simple. They cried, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. The messianic title. Mercy, pity, compassion. Less than we deserve. The title, Lord, son of David. Messianic one. They heard, and faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. God will bless you for being here tonight. Not because you're sitting under me, because you're sitting under his word. And he will deal with your heart, and he will bless you, and he will direct, and he will guide, and he will speak to you. The majority of Christians today are no longer going to church on Sunday night. I don't know what they're doing. But whatever they're doing, they shouldn't be doing. Culture. People are cultural Christians. Amazing. Even midweeks people are starting to kind of not attend. If one of you come, I will be here. I'm not impressed by numbers. I don't study harder if it's packed out. I study the same. It makes no difference. 31 through 34, the response of Jesus to the two blind men is interesting here. The uncompassionate crowd tried to silence the blind men. Then the multitude warned them and they, that they should be quiet. Shut up. But they cried out all the more saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. They just kept crying out. Their faith could not be discouraged. You see, this was a window of opportunity they had to walk through, even if they had to get on all fours. They had heard about Jesus. They knew what he could do. They didn't know he was going to come through here again. They were not going to be quiet. And Jesus knew this. So Jesus took Notice of them in verse 32. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They, they didn't get mad. Said, what, can, what do we want? What do you think? No. Their request, Lord, that our eyes may be open to see. Wow. Now, I lost my right eye when I was 23 years old through a stick accident. I'm used to it now, but your eyes are precious, your sight. You need it for everything and everything you do. And that whether these guys were born blind or lost their sight through an accident, we were not told But you can imagine a person who has never seen daylight color, a tree, the face of their parents, 
And all of a sudden they can see. Wow. How amazing is that? Their request was granted, so Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes. The other gospel says as he spoke, he touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight. And they went their way. No, it says they followed him. You see, when people truly come to Jesus, not just for what they can get from him, but because they know that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the only one that can forgive them and save them and redeem them. They follow him. There are some people that just want to get the goodies. They think Jesus is Santa Claus. So you've got people on two camps. Those who are sold out to Jesus and they see their wretchedness and they're so thankful. Then you've got those who are in grace like some of those laborers. They want to compare themselves among themselves. Here these guys, they follow Jesus. He's headed up to Jerusalem. They don't know what's going to happen. We're going to have the triumphal entry. What a great day that was. But the same crowd that will be cheering Jesus on. Hallelujah. Hosanna. Blessed be the, he who comes in the name of the Lord. The same crowd the next day. They wanted to tar and feather him and kill him. I've had people sit where you sit. They used to say, oh man. Oh, thank you. Boy, God, his word, he's so good. I've had those same people accuse me of deceiving them that I'm teaching lies. That the Bible is not true. Wow. My judgment. To those that much is given, much more is required, ladies and gentlemen. Make sure you um, don't allow yourself to be deceived. Make sure that you don't deceive yourself. That's the greatest deception. Sin, Satan, and self. Three things that can just destroy your life. But you have to give permission. It doesn't happen by accident. It happens by being careless and self-willed. So may God um, give us eyes to see. The problem is spiritual in our nation, not financial, not political. It's spiritual. So you make sure you walk with God, you stay in the word, you stay in prayer, you stay in fellowship, you stay serving. You care and guard your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. And you be that lighthouse, unmovable. So when those in the family or friends are out there like, Ships in the storm, they can see your light and come home. Very important.
Father, we worship you. We thank you for your grace and love. We thank you for your word, Lord, and your goodness towards us. We thank you for opening up our eyes to be able to see our own depravity, the world, the way it is, Lord. And it makes all the sense and that, Lord, you've given us a new heart. We pray, Lord, tonight and those who are here and those over the Internet or out in the world somewhere through the radio that they don't know you, that you would open their eyes to see themselves as you, they are, Lord, enemies of you, that they also see your love for them, that you die for them, and you desire to forgive them. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. If you're out there somewhere in the world, call on Jesus right now. A prayer of repentance, and he will cleanse you, he will make you new, and he will make you a child of God by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That not of yourself, it's a gift to God. Why? Because he loves you. John three sixteen. So if you want to be born again, this is your prayer to the Lord. He's going to cleanse you and forgive you right now and give to you eternal life. Right where you sit or wherever you may be in the world. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand. We'll close in worship. If you need prayer, questions i'll be up here in front if you accepted the lord please don't leave without sharing with us tony will meet you right there to my right your left by the door he'll give you that bible absolutely free and if you're out there somewhere in the world you accepted christ call on his name find a church get a bible and grow in the knowledge of jesus christ God bless you. Love one another. Prayer and questions. Accept the Lord right over there. See you midweek. God bless. National Day of Prayer. Thanks, Sam.